the stadium, I think, uh, has, <laughs> that stadium has hosted 50 million different events. Some have yep. been great. Some have been incredible. Some have been bad. None have been as disastrous as this. I don't know if it was a disaster. It was just really, really poorly attended. That's a disaster. When you okay. talk about from a financial when standpoint. Of, when you say disaster, I think of Firefest. Oh, no, 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 no. A disaster from a financial standpoint where you have a 100,000-seat stadium and it looked like there were 70 people in there. Yeah, because that, the, the picture that I sent you, did I, did I yeah, send yeah. you a picture? Okay, uh-huh. that was 8 o'clock on Friday, um, and it was Blue October's set. And granted, they're not a huge band, but I'm thinking if you're going to go see the Killers headline a show, you might want to get there a little early. You could have fit the entire crowd that was watching uh, Blue October, and I'm not exaggerating, into trees and had room to walk around. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to have, uh, we're talking about this, by the way, three-day festival that was Friday, Saturday, Sunday out there at Cowboy Stadium, AT&T Stadium, and, you know, we advertised for it, other stations advertised for it, um, the minute that we saw, though, that it was announced, mm-hmm. And this was before, you know, they they were spending money with us. You and I talked about it, and we were like... Off the air. <laughs> what? What are um, they trying to do here? It's too many things to too many people. And this was billed as so many different things, too, from music to comedy to food to art. And it was all going to be housed inside the new stadium. And, you know, it's one thing... Most of these big, giant festivals, and this template has been done before in San Diego. It's been there for a couple of years. Petty's last show. Mm -hmm. Was it Kaboo? Kaboo. Right? Did not know that. Yeah. And comics. Yeah, yeah. Comedy. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mention that. You know, big name uh, comics were there. Huge. You know, and, and then it was, again. Most of these festivals, though, there's a reason that you have them. They're at a destination site. They're mm-hmm. on a beach. Coachella's in the desert. Um, uh, I'm losing my mind here on the on the big one in Tennessee, Bonnaroo. That's yeah. you know it's, that was one of the first ones ever created. It's got the big camping scene. They have a reason. Uh, that- is an AT and T stadium around here a destination? Yeah, for a football game. Yeah. I mean, it's a destination for one thing, right? Being a giant room that houses crap. But for th- something like this, and we've been to, we've all been to concerts there. Like a beach, you don't need an event to go to the beach, right? You don't. You need an event to go out. To you don't the need turret it on the turnpike. You don't need an event to go to Palm Springs. Right. You know, it's just yeah. kind of sells itself type thing. Yeah, I mean, it seems weird to me, too, but if you're talking about a destination, I mean, everybody who comes into town or through town wants to at least go drive by there and see the thing. Well, and that was the thought process behind this, is that because it's the new stadium, 10 years old, because it's the new stadium, you're going to have people come in from anywhere and everywhere. And just like all these other festivals, it's ne- they're never supported by locals. Yeah. It's something that people travel to and they make it an event. Nobody came in for this. Dude. Nobody, and nobody from the area went to it. On Friday, that picture I sent you was Blue October, okay? I get it. They're one of the opening bands, but immediately after them was Alanis Morissette, Ludacris, Lauren Hill, Lionel Richie, and the Killers. 
Think about how bad it was for the bands before them. I know. You started the day with Acid Dad, Larkin Poe, Los Lobos, the old 97s, Joan Jett. They were all outside. And Bush. That was all outside? I don't know. No, Bush was inside. I know the old 97s was outside, and Joan Jett may have been inside as well. Okay. But still. Yeah. There were 500 people there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they said that, you know, the people that went, and we had a couple people here from work that went. Um, I had friends that went, you had a couple of friends that went, and they all said the same thing, that they had a good time once they were in there, but there was just, it was more awkward than anything else, because you yeah, go in there the reason going, they had a good time was because, unlike most festivals where you have to put up with people, tons and tons of people, and you have to wait in line for stuff, you didn't have to do any of that out there. Right. Nope, there's no line to get in there's no parking snafus there's no food lines there's no any of this that would, sounds pretty badass honestly i, I know does. from a but i, I mean I'm kicking myself would, for not go going this, now. Yeah. but think about it it's a disaster it's beyond a disaster okay, trying to well, that's their problem if i'm a, a consumer and of course a, an attendee of the thing this is what I want. Right. But, I mean, it's kind of like what we were talking about. Well, with, even the DJs, I recognize three or four of these names, and I know nothing about that world. Dude, did you read the article about uh, Mixmaster Mike from the Beastie Boys? Yeah, on Sunday. No, I didn't read it. When he starts to do his thing, and he's doing something outside, and they said that, like, five people were out by this pool that they <laughs> put out there. Oh, my God. Like, that's now, what it right, was. All right. Now, if, if you want to talk about where they went off the rails, that's it. Because they tried to um, to make this a stratum type thing where you could pay a little bit more and get into certain areas that the yes. proletariat could not get into, you know? Well, the problem was, and I've talked to a bunch of people, the, pro- the main problem was is that, well, A, nobody showed up, but the whole front area was reserved for VIP people. Mm-hmm. And so the people that, that typically support these things, the the majority, yeah. basically, they couldn't get anywhere near the stage. And then when you look at the stage, nobody was there because it was all VIP and nobody bought VIP. Therefore, it literally looked empty. These people had walls that they had to look over right. yeah. to see to see these bands. That I don't understand at all. How do you not know? That you're not selling well and not pull the plug on something, dude. I can pro- I cannot believe they went through with this. I Typically, things either. like I think that they had they must have paid these people so early on. And this How? is again, How did they pay them. Well, because they've done Kaboo San Diego for a couple of years. They did Kaboo Grand Cayman, and then when they moved it to here, and we were talking about this, we're like, what are they doing? Yeah, this is almost like a franchise. Why are they doing it here? You know, look, we all we live here. We like this place. Yeah, there's a reason we live but here. We we also know our city, right? Yeah, it's it a great was place a, to live, but you wouldn't want to visit here. A really weird thing all the way around. It made no sense having something like that here. I they mean, had the Cowboys some, fully behind it. Yeah. Charlotte Jones, she was knee deep in this thing, and they couldn't get nothing moving. How? Awkward is it on Sunday when Eric Burden and the animals are, you know, leaving, they've got their guitar cases in hand and walk by the promoter and take the check and go, oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, about seven people there. Yeah, they don't Thank care, you. I guess, but it is what it is. I, I, I uh, Here's <laughs> the bad part, because Pete Friedman from Central Track sent us this uh, article from their outlet. 
And this is the best part. This that, is that, you think what we just talked about makes zero sense. Read this. So here it is. Central track. Dallas real estate developer and Cabo, Texas investor Bill Hutchinson confirms to Central Track that Cabo, Texas and the Dallas Cowboys have already committed to a 10-year agreement on the festival's operations in Arlington and that the festival will definitely return in 2020. Video signs around the stadium also noted this as crowds left the grounds on Sunday night and it's since been doubled down upon by a statement released today wherein Cabo, Texas festival partner Jason Feltz said the event delivered a little something for everyone, both indoors and outdoors at AT&T Stadium, and they look forward to seeing everyone again next year. Ten years? Dude, I'm trying to like estimate the amount of money that, that, uh, that somebody would lose on something like this. The amount of bands that they had as mishmashy and mixed and weird as they were, yep. they all command millions of dollars, and 50 people showed up. Here's the deal. You think of AT&T Stadium not being a destination point. The other thing you also listed, you said you've got the Lollapalooza, you've got the beach. You're talking about not just the beach, but the city is a destination point. Right. People will go to San Diego Right for nothing, just right. because it's San Diego. People will go to Chicago because it's a great city. Nobody comes to Dallas no. for anything. No, they're not going to look at this festival. Look, you you might be able to get a good portion of folks that actually live here, but these festivals are by and large supported by traveling people that don't live in that city. One hundred percent. Nobody wants to come to Dallas. No. There's no reason to. No, and then the people here were like, "I don't want to go. I may want to go see the Killers, but I don't want to sit through Lionel Richie." And um, uh, you know whoever else the violent films. Yeah, but and what else is Pitbull? there to do here? Once you leave that Ar- Arlington, you're gonna all right. What else is there to do in Dallas? Go to the stockyards and the sixth floor museum, and I guess I'll just go back to the hotel. There's not a this is it's a Dude. young it's a young city. There's no history here. This is not Chicago or New York, and we're landlocked. There's no beach, so nobody. There's no reason to come here. Again, the people that were there were like, yeah, it was cool, because nobody was there. Had to fight through nothing. But you can't repeat this. Oh, they're going to repeat it for 10 years. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. We'll see. Uh Uh-uh. We'll see. Well, good luck, Kaboo, with your bottom. Yep, we'll see if it actually does happen again. The ticket. We'll have community quick hits coming up here in just a little bit. Mm -hmm. So stand by for that. But right now... It is time for us to review the film Rocketman, which yeah. we saw last night. We did at the Alamo Draft House up in Richardson. That was our first of our summer con- or summer movie series, and uh, that was quite the uh, the showing. Had that sucker sold out, and and everybody anticipating the new Elton John biopic. Because I really didn't know what to expect. Although I had read decent reviews on the movie, mm-hmm. I. I held back on actually reading plot lines and things like that because I hate doing that. Mm-hmm. Movies that I really want to see, and I did really want to see this. And so, whenever the movie opened up with him in some crazy Elton John outfit, like a devil outfit, yeah, and a devil outfit, walking into what appeared to be an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and suddenly it broke out into full song and dance and I'm like 
oh, this is a full-on musical movie. Damn near. Oh, yeah, for sure. It was Broadway all the way. Yeah, it was. And you know what? I loved it. It was fantastic. I thought it was so clever and so well done and so right up Elton John's alley. I was hoping for more biopic, but on its own terms, yes, it was. It was quite good. To make a... good. Just know before you go, though, that this is no biopic. This is, this is Elton John brought to Broadway. This... Had this story been told to appeal to the audience that Bohemian Rhapsody geared their story to appeal to, this is about as cliche and redundant of a rock and roll, uh, you know, rags to riches story and then succumbing to alcohol and drugs and then redemption that you'll ever see. Because that part of the story is so surface, and you've heard it a million times. Nerds are going to want to know more about his relationship with Bernie, which I thought they did a great job in in incorporating him into damn near the the entire film. Bernie Bernie Taupin. Bernie Taupin, his co-writer, or co-songwriter. But the way they did this and used his songs to illustrate particular points in his life that were difficult for him, I thought was brilliant. And the way that the, the songs weren't necessarily performed just by Elton John it, whatever the scene was if it was a scene with his mother and his father they might take a line the dad might take a line then it would go back to him and then it would expand and maybe the whole neighborhood dancing and it was man, really brilliant man it's out there yeah it's way way out there but I agree and at the heart of it all is Taron Egerton as Elton John and boy, was he great or what? Sensational. Okay, here's what I'm thinking because, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody was fine. Had no problems with it. It was fun. But it was more about Rami Malik portraying Freddie Mercury than anything else. Yep. Am I wrong to say, and maybe I got to go revisit Bohemian Rhapsody? And he won Best Actor, for God's sakes. Am I wrong thinking that Taron Egerton was way better than Rami Malik was? Like, maybe put more... There was more to it, I guess. I shouldn't say better. That that required a lot more of an actor doing what he did than what Malik did. Malik basically just... He mimed. He mimicked. And yeah. he did a fantastic job of it. Kind of like the, the way that uh, uh, Bale mimicked Chaney and was fantastic at it. This was an interpretation. I don't feel... I don't. I don't think a lot of people know enough about... Elton John's personal mannerisms to be able to say whether he did a good job mimicking Elton John, but he can sure as hell conveyed the emotion of Elton John. It was a great acting job. Yeah, it was a great acting job, but I thought Malik was too. Malik as Freddie Mercury was was too. He was. He. I, I don't disagree with that. But there was so much more to this, dude. This took a ton from an acting standpoint. Yeah. And that was him singing everything. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Dude, that's Taron that. Egerton, just like, hey, can you sing? I don't know. Let me try. Yeah. But oh, you can you sing just like Elton John? Yeah, I guess not really. And that's what I liked about this. I didn't think he particularly looked exactly like Elton John. I don't, I don't he think did he, the, I don't, he I don't did think, in that later stage of the yeah, I, male I pattern baldness. But I don't think he got as close to Elton as Malik did to Mercury. But and I don't think he sounded 
much like Elton John, and maybe his mannerisms weren't the same, but he just, I don't know, he portrayed him. He, he put the vibe across. The vibe was across, and it wasn't just, let me get every mannerism perfect and mimic this, 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 this larger-than-life figure. You just felt like you were watching a person, whereas Malik, you're watching a performance of a guy playing somebody that's larger yeah. than life. I got, put it this way. There's no doubt. Here's the bad part. The good part is he'll be nominated for Best Actor. One million percent he'll be nominated. He, but bad he, won't, part. he won't win. He can't win. You can't give it to two music dudes two years in a row. Two legendary, historic rock and roll men. That's just not going to happen. Hollywood ain't going to roll that way. No. Uh, boy, there was a eye-opening, oh my God, moment in there. Now, you're not there yet, Mike. If you're continuing to consume Game of Thrones, <laughs> but this guy came on screen, and me and Danny at the same time were like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god!" Oh my god. Because there, standing in front of us in sixty-foot glory, was Rob Stark doing his greatest impression of not the actual person, but the look of Neil Diamond. Yeah, he looked like Neil Diamond, but he played in the movie, and he had. You know, I don't know who's second fiddle. Probably the mom is second fiddle in this movie. Or Bernie Taupin is, but he's right there as his manager slash lover. Elton John's manager slash lover. And he's a big player, Mike, in the upcoming Game of Thrones scene. And you talk about getting your guts ripped out when old Rob takes one in the shorts. It's tough. It's very tough. Rob, Rob's a good man. But yeah, seeing that, what's his name? I don't even know. know his name. I couldn't tell you. Rob Stark. Yeah, I go, look, Corby, it's Rob Stark. <laughs> <laughs> but he was great. Boy, he was, was mean. Oh, he so was mean. so mean. Yes, he was so awful. You know, the thing that I also loved about this, so Elton John was a, was a producer on this. Elton, this had Elton and Bernie Toppin's fingerprints all over. They yeah. signed off on this. This is the vision they wanted. Right. Whereas in, in um, Bohemian Rhapsody... It was all about protecting Freddie Mercury. They didn't want it to go too far. Right. They did not want people to see that side, the, I mean, like, full throttle, 120 Freddie Mercury. Well, here, Elton John is like, I want you to see it all. I want you to see what a horrible human being that I was through the 70s and how lost I was and how addicted to everything that I was. This is one of my favorite parts is the opening scene when he sits down at the AA meeting and says, I know how this goes. I'm, what did he say? I'm Elton Hercules John, and I'm an alcoholic. And then he lists about 17 other addictions right. in a row. And it is very stereotypical of musicians back in the day. They all were, to a certain degree, it seemed like, in one time or another. But the fact that Elton was like, yeah, here it is. Here I I almost died like three times because I was such a cokehead and pill popper and drank all day. This is a, here's what I don't understand because you you see people dying left and right all the time. Early on, alcoholism, drug addicts, and everything. How how did like Eric Clapton and Elton John and Keith Richards and those guys? Luck. How did they come out of the other side? Luck. They're. They got more better constitution in their DNA, man. Um, Elton and Eric Clapton probably did it with twelve step. I know Eric Clapton did. No, no, no he's saying how do they stay alive? How do they not die oh, when just the throws it. Oh, within the just how do they 
I mean, they, how they were. Do, how do they do all that and live? If they woke up, if they were awake, they were effed up. They started drinking the minute the sun came, or the minute they woke up. Man, I don't know. And then they took drugs all day long, and they <laughs> did know. it for. You know, Eric Clapton did it for two decades. Elton John did it for fifteen years. How do you? I don't know. That, like, how does that happen? And then, Lynn, and then that. Lynn Bias dies the first time that he tries cocaine. You know what I'm saying? Just luck of the draw. Yep. I don't know, man. But it, it is amazing that those guys are around to tell their tale. Yeah. And, you know, it is a story of redemption. It is a story of love and... You know, if that's all true about his upbringing, I just, I, I shudder every time I see stories like this about fathers who are so, and I think this is the way it was back then with the World War II dads, that you just didn't see a lot of affection from him at all. Mm-hmm. And that's all, half the movie's about Elton John wondering why his dad won't hug him. Why won't he hug me, Mom? What's going on? Why won't he give me a hug? It just didn't roll that way back then, man. I know, and it's so weird. You can tell that Elton brought a lot of that therapy, 12-step-based methodology into the film because he spends the whole time trying to get approval and love from things that are temporary, knowing his dad's never going to embrace him the way he wants him to, but still keeps going back for it. Yeah. And that he reaches to every freaking drug and drink available to anesthetize and and frivolous, promiscuous sex with just strangers. And then in the end, he realizes that, and it's in that great scene with him facing himself as a, as a five-year-old boy and realizing, oh, the problem is I don't love myself. And the yeah. little boy had been waiting his whole life to, right. to be hugged. Yeah. And he realized that, that 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 had to come from within. And I know I sound like a total cheese dork saying it, but it is true. No, and it's it's very cool. And it's that incredibly he, that he found moving. That piece incredibly after, you know, moving. Yeah. Being, you know, super gay in a time when that wasn't too cool. Hey, by the way, I thought he married Kiki D. Did he not marry no, Don't go breaking my No, mind. no, I don't think he married her. Who was that lady that he married? He, he got, I think her name was Renata something or other. Okay. Yeah. But, I don't, but in that my was head, not, that was not Kiki D. Because I've never been a big Elton guy. Like I obviously appreciate what he does, and there are songs that that move me. But I've never been like a guy that has been dying to go no, see no, a show. I, mean, I, I never, I don't follow all of his, you know, comings and goings and whatnot. But did you see him in the seventies? Uh, yeah, I did. Was it pretty badass? Yeah. I mean, every time I've seen him, it's badass. And I was really looking forward to that last night because right now I've got. Elton John remorse, something fierce for not going to see him when he was here a few months ago. Man, don't you wish there was video of that Troubadour show where he broke out oh my for the God. first time? That would be so cool if that's you know an ac- accurate portrayal. It, it, I, well, I did it, go back and read that last night that yes, he destroyed the Troubadour yes, and became famous. He, he was virtually unknown on these shores. I believe his first album was already out, and they booked him at the Troubadour. He, came, I believe, for three or four nights. He came over, and he'd been written up a lot. So, you know, if you were in the music scene, you heard the name. And you read the touts and everything. You may not have heard too much of his stuff, but I'm sure people who were with the scene out there in Los Angeles went to the Troubadour, and yes, as the story goes, he just killed. And 
after night one, if you were anybody in the scene out there, that was the place to be. You had yeah. to go see it. Well, that was and, a really cool reprisal of that, if, if in fact that was all true. that was. And he had about, like, I don't know, 12 songs in his repertoire. Last, now, this is one thing about the film that kind of bugged me a little bit. I mean, I guess they went I out of order on all that. Yeah, I guess I understand why they did it, but they had him playing, you know, more contemporary stuff. I mean, those songs were 10, 15 years away still. Right, yeah. And I would love it, loved it if they would have stayed a little bit truer to it than that. But, yeah, he killed at the Troubadour. And, and his live album, 11, 17, 70, is one you should hear if you haven't. I have Because that's live from there. Oh, it is? Yeah. Really? Oh, it wow. Is. No, I've never heard that. I'm game for that. I loved it, though. I thought it was really good. Mm -hmm. I'm typically not the guy that's into that type of stuff, but I loved it. Michael? Uh, yeah, I liked it okay. Once I got my head right with the fact that this was not going to be a biopic, like I hoped, and I was not going to get what I wanted here, and I had to get my head right with it, then I was fine with it. Neat. Right. The ticket. We have another death, guys, because apparently people continue to die. This time, Jerry Stiller, comedian, 92 years old. You know what's weird is, like, when my mom passed away a couple weeks ago, a lot of people asked me, did she have COVID? And I never even thought of that. Like, and she didn't, by the way. She just died. But now every time I see somebody of that age... Yeah. Because we have had, a, a you know, what, Danny? Four or five different celebrities in the country music world yeah. uh, get hit with the COVID, but this just seems like it was natural causes. I mean, he's 92. That's how his death was listed, was natural causes. Um, Jerry Stiller's career. I can't wait to do this segment only because I think I'm probably older than your average listener, and I know him specifically for that reason. I think did most you, of the audience does. Did you guys know of him before Seinfeld? Yes. Were you, okay, I didn't. No. Like, honestly, I had never heard of him. I know him for two reasons. Seinfeld and King of Queens? No, Seinfeld and the Nike commercials where he played Vince Lombardi. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. I wasn't aware of the uh, 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 of the, the thing that he had with his wife, Anne. Yeah, Stiller and Mira. Yes. Go they ahead. Had a, they had a comedy troupe. First of all, he was born in 1927, um, passed away at the age of 92. This was on May 11th, so just a few days ago. Brooklyn kid, born and raised, lived in different uh, areas of Brooklyn until they um, ended up settling uh, in Manhattan. But he started early on, obviously, in theater, but he met his wife, and they started dating in 1950 because I guess they were friends in the business before, and she had gone to a casting call, and apparently the casting director was weird with her, and she was kind of upset about it jerry said well let me take you to coffee because he was broke it's all he could afford and after that get together of them him comforting her after a bad experience with a casting director they never parted until she died in 2015 i believe so 60... she's only been gone yeah 60 plus years jeez the, yeah. ca the casting director did not try to stop short on her though right well that we don't know i'll tell you what remember the stop short trick oh yeah for sure <laughs> But they did they did comedy duo stuff. They were they, they, until it kind of like 
the, the, the variety show kind of played itself out. Then they did radio. They promoted certain products. They did voiceover stuff together. But they were a comedy duo for a very, very long time. Wow. And like Ed Sullivan, all that crap. Oh, yeah, all of it, man. And then their careers, he says that they broke up the comedy duo to save their marriage. Um, but as that kind of dissolved, he was somewhat irrelevant until Seinfeld. Yeah. And he got the call. Would you be interested to hear what he originally thought of being considered to be cast as George Costanza's father? We got some audio here, David Mino. This is from a local television show somewhere in America from many years ago. They call you, hey, Jerry, there's a show called Seinfeld. George needs a new dad. And you say, I, I can't do it. I'm doing a play right now in New York with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman, and I can't leave. But they say, well, you know, actors do this all the time. You know, you can do two things at once. I said, I can't do it. I turned them down because I had never seen Seinfeld. I didn't know who Seinfeld was. I had nothing connected with anybody else's life but my own at the time <laughs> because I was I was looking for work. And here I was. I had a job. So I turned them down. And uh, lo and behold, Three months later, they got me back, and uh, I started to uh, play the role of Frank Costanza, kind of a guy who was supposed to be meek, very Thurberesque, kind of low-keyed, because I was working with Estelle Harris, who spoke like that in a very loud, characteristic voice, and they told me to play it low. When I did play it low, I figured I, too, would be replaced as the father on, uh, on this show. So I screamed one afternoon. I said, this is it. Just before the cameras went on, I said, you masculated him. You slept with him in bed. You did all this. And they broke up. And Larry David said, do it like that. And then Estelle said, can I scream at him too? <laughs> and Larry said, Estelle, only one person can scream at Jason at a time. <laughs> that was it. Can you believe that? He turned it down. I had heard that before. I and, never knew that. And I'd seen him. He's done multiple interviews telling that story, retelling the story of how he found the voice of, of that character. Oh, and I great. always thought that... All right, you roll him in here. He's this loud, boisterous. He's almost like he was almost like Kramer, old Kramer, mm-hmm. like just so out there. Well, and captured like New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, really totally, well. yeah. totally. Some really interesting stuff about him. His father died only twenty, twenty-one years ago, and he was born in the eighteen hundreds. His father Whoa. lived to be a hundred and three. Whoa, dang! So. And his star started to shine right when his son broke. I mean, his second turn of of becoming a star. Because Ben, in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, started becoming a thing right when his dad did again. He appeared in a lot of Ben's movies. Uh, The Zoolanders 1 and 2, he was in those, and a number of other maybe lesser-known films. But yeah, it was... What's that? Heavyweights. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's one of my favorites. (laughs) But yeah, his star happened with his. I mean, as we know him, as as uh, in Seinfeld, um, I like Bob said. I knew him from the Nike commercials, and if you recall, what he would do, he played Coach Lombardi. Yeah, he was playing or a Lombardi esque figure that was an old school guy, and they would put him on the sidelines as the old school Lombardi guy with Dallas Cowboys. With you know the nineties yeah. with Deion Sanders. If you want to hear a here's a thirty second. Sure. 30-second commercial. This is old-school fake Lombardi saying something about Deion Sanders that you might not expect Lombardi to say. All right? Here we go. Yes, me. This Deion kid isn't showing up. Just having fun. You know, that ain't canasta they're playing out there. This is football. It's a very emotional game. 
You bust up a big play and score a touchdown. Fellas got to let it out. And you get both. Trust me. You'll be doing the chat on the end zone too. So basically, it's Dion showing off, doing all of his yeah. Dion moves, and, and the he's like, cool with it. He's championing it. He's yeah. like, "Hey, you'd be doing the cha 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 too." Yeah, and it was a really interesting campaign because they never actually identified him as like, "Hey, this is Vince Lombardi." The, yeah. you, you figured it out, and sometimes they would just like show his silhouette watching film, as I recall, and sometimes he's on the sideline. But it was it was cool because you know. Clearly, you had to sort of know what you were looking for. And then, of course, he makes Lombardi. And, and he's perfect Lombardi, isn't he? Oh, he's great. Like they, they probably grew up three blocks apart, I bet. Did he, you, he was described as playing the ghost of Lombardi. Yes, yes. That's what it was. Did you guys watch King of Queens at all? I never did. And I know, like, the second, basically, that Seinfeld went off the air... He just he walked the across the studio and got the gig on King of Queens and did that for like nine years. Yeah, Same and, character? Uh, pretty Similar. close. Very close. So I was I was a pretty big P1 of, of King of Queens. Matter of fact, whenever we go on vacation, you can find King of Queens on <laughs> at like 10, 1030. And it seems like every vacation we go on, we turn on the TV wherever we are at 10 o'clock. And that is our wind down show, King of Queens. Still, okay. yeah. and so I've seen a ton of them. And he plays Leah Remini's dad, who lived in the basement. Well, they should they had a place in in Queens, of course, with Kevin James. Kevin James married way up. That was at a time when CBS sitcoms. Yes, they all revolved around average looking dude, right? Portly or awkward or whatever. That with, kicked his coverage by a freaking mile. And all they do is kick the dad in the nuts the entire show. Pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Ray yeah. Romano the same way. Yeah, yeah that's the, the that's, Simpsons. Come on. That's the cost of marrying up though. Is that Absolutely. you're going to be the target of ridicule, but that's fine. So CBS had, CBS had this like template out there and and yeah, he was he made the show. I mean, he was the they were everybody was pretty funny on the show, but him playing the fought, the beaten down dad and always button heads and I mean it's old school laugh track comedy, but he's really really good. And everybody says too that his character on Seinfeld and his character on King of Queens is nothing like he really is in real life. He sounds incredibly calm. Yes, which makes me really? crazy. Yeah, yeah. I want him to be that guy. And, yeah. uh, I want him yelling at George as Costanza's dad. It was just kind of like an older version of George because. They would start their conversation, and then this happened, and then it just goes up to here. Right. Have you guys kind of like is a reflection of Larry David? I was going to say it's that exact curb feel, and it's that exact New York City feel, and the you know it's it's all tied together, isn't it? Have you Mm -hmm. seen the outtakes of him making Julia Louis Dreyfus laugh? It's great. I would love. Holy crap! Is it funny? Okay. And they can't do the scene. Like, they keep no, trying. I almost pulled it, but it's too visual. <laughs> over and over and over to do the scene, and they just can't get it done because she, he is cracking her up so bad. And he, you know what? That's the other thing about this. And we were talking about this, I can't remember, a week ago about fat people very scared to lose weight, uh, actors mm-hmm. and comedians, yeah. because I think they're going to lose their funny. There's something about the way that Jerry Stiller looked that made him funny. Short, the mustache, mustache. yes, the accent, yeah, all of it added to it, and you wonder if he could have pulled that off as a six foot two guy, you know? How about the uh, fun fact of only thirty Seinfeld episodes out of uh, the one eighty? That's unreal, you know. And I suppose most ancillary characters—that seems about fair. Maybe that is about what it is, and we just think, oh, Newman was always there. Probably not, you know. It's no. 
but it's just uh, it's really interesting that just like a very small percentage, like 15, 16%. Boy, and they mine gold with him in those 30. Where'd they live in Florida when they retired? Del Boca, Del Boca Vista. Vista. Yes. Yes, Del <laughs> Boca Vista. The pen the astronauts use. Yes. Oh, the best. Bad. Tell me if you remember this. In 1979, and this went on for three years until 82, him and his wife hosted a show on HBO. It happened once a month. It was what? called HBO Sneak Previews. It was a half an hour long. And what it did is they described movies and programs to be featured in the coming month. They did that for three years on HBO. He right and in our, Yeah, right in our wheelhouse of discovering HBO. Okay, I was going to ask. Did you guys know HBO was in the 70s? I, yeah. I, I don't okay. think I, you That's had, when it started. Did you have HBO back then? I had scrambled HBO until we found a way to pay for it. We all had scrambled HBO. You're damn right we did. <laughs> I don't think I had HBO until like 83 or 84. But so. my friend had the the, every, the, dish. the everything dish. Oh, yes. That's Was all. this dish the size of like a McDonald's? Yes, and there are so many stories I could tell you about almost getting busted by his parents for watching oh. what we called back then the Screw Channel. <laughs> anyway, so they did that thing, and then they were given a sitcom in 86 called The Stiller and Mira Show where he played a deputy mayor of New York City, and she played a TV commercial actress. Never no idea. That. And you know what? It probably lasted about two episodes before it was canceled. Well, that guy had, you talk about multiple lives. You, you think about like kind of going away from the scene for 20 years in Hollywood. Yeah. And you don't then do that. Back. No, you don't do that. Unless and you're John Travolta. I, and I didn't even realize either until much later on in the Seinfeld uh, run that that was Ben Stiller's dad. Like, I never put two and two together until years after that. No, Ben definitely has broken the mold of, you know, the I mean, just the whole persona of Jerry. It's it's totally different, but, man, I'm, they're, they're both so great. I know. And you look back at old clips of Jerry and Ann back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. He looks so much like Ben, it's scary. Yeah, and she was a looker. Tall. <laughs> I mean, she was Very a, tall. a head taller than him. She was. Well, but yeah, as uh, far as we're concerned, he's George's dad from Seinfeld. Um, and let's go out of this segment with a classic clip from Seinfeld. It's very brief, but this is the you guys remember Festivus, of course. Oh, yeah. It's the holiday for the rest of us. And this was the end of the day at Festivus when I guess it was a Costanza family tradition that you couldn't end the day without fighting your dad. <laughs> And here it is. <laughs> Until you pin me, George, Festivus is not over. Oh, please, somebody stop this. Let's rumble! <laughs> I think you can take him, Georgie. Hey, come on. Be sensible. Stop crying and fight your father. <laughs> Ow! Ow, I got This is I the best it. Festivus oh, ever! <laughs> so great. So insane. Maybe Man, that's that show. Stop crying and fight your father! <laughs> that's such a... Uh, that's a fun little trope, too, of Hollywood, is that you have to fight your father someday. <laughs> That's Hot Rod. Hot Rod loves that, yeah. too. That's <laughs> great. Well, stay All right. hard, Jer. Stay R. R. hard. No doubt.